As an industry, we've made it our business to learn about games, how they work, about their resonance, and their successes or failures. But there's a human side to the industry as well. My name is Paul James, and welcome to Dev Diary, a series that explores and celebrates the incredible feats of the people behind the games as we dive into their stories, the highs, the lows, and everywhere in between. In this episode, I'm joined by Steve Stamadiatis and Lindsay Parmenter, current creative director and producer, respectively, at Chrome Studios. So join us as we explore their journey. So today I'm joined by both Steve and Lindsay. How are you both? Good, thanks. Not too bad. How are you? Oh, quite well. It's, it's evening. We've we've made the stars align to get this conversation going from time zones to sleeping children. It's it's all going very well. So I'm sure we're in for a great episode. Thank, thank you both for coming along. No worries. Yeah, you're welcome. So this is Dev Diary, a series where we talk to developers from throughout the industry. They share their stories, their experiences, and the journey that's led to this current point in time. But before I get to the the work that you've done in the industry, which is it's huge, it's incredibly impressive, and we're going to talk about some fantastic titles coming up, I wanted to wade into the waters that are there before you actually got into the industry and kind of focus on some of your first gaming experiences. Do either of you recall what either your first game was or at least what some of your first games were that you played? Yes. Um, for, for me, it goes back to uh, there was a space... Remember Space War? The um, Oh, yeah. Right, so there's what the mall where I grew up, with my parents had a shop, had a space war machine in the late 70s. I'd say about probably 79, before Space Invaders got really big. Yep. And I used to go there and play that. You put 20 cents in and you'd press the keypad from one to nine to add things like zero gravity or bouncing bullets and all that stuff. And that was just like the most amazing thing ever because it was like a little, <laughs> little Star Destroyer and little Enterprise shooting at each other. And that was. I think that was to me. I was like, "Oh, this stuff's really cool." And then there was, um, you know, you had the early, the early '80s with the arcade explosion, and I was like a real arcade rat. I would go to hang out at arcades any chance I could. And this is when arcades were really, you know, you'd go in there, there'd be smoke-filled stuff with, you know, they're dark, dimly lit, but they had all the cool games yeah. in there. And I, um, and I remember stuff like, I actually remember my conversation, 1981, grade seven. And the kids were saying, there's this new game down at the bowling alley. It's called Donkey Kong. And you run along and you jump on these girders and stuff. And for me, I, remember, I was imagining it in my head because I hadn't seen it. And I knew a game called Crazy Climber, which was like you climbed on the side of a, um, a building. And yep. I was like imagining Donkey Kong was like that. And it was like totally blown. I went down the bowling alley and checked it out. It's like, oh, this is so really different. But yeah, I, I would check out games all the time. And then from the arcade stuff through to uh, getting a computer, and then starting to write programs out of magazines, doing it that way, learning how to code stuff and, and do animation through to, I think, getting the Amiga. And then you just came from there. So I've, I've been doing this for a while. Uh, Lindsay's similar, similar sort of story at all? I mean, um, yeah, obviously that's, that's a very early point, but similar sort of story? Yeah, pretty similar. I'm a, a little bit younger than Steve, but my early <laughs> recollections are uh, uh, my dad bringing home a, a, a Apple II from... Um, his work uh, and playing a game called Aztec on it, which was basically oh, yeah. Yeah. Jones without a ping, Indiana Jones, uh, monochrome green screen, but you know, using your machete and planting dynamite and flooding and poisonous snakes and uh, uh, Indian fakers blowing poison darts at you and that sort of stuff. And then uh, also the the original wood grain Atari 2600, 
um, were, got one of those as well as a, as a kid. And, Hard uh, to beat that, very, right? Yeah, very, very fair setup. But uh, uh, when when I was young, I thought it was very fair, is that everyone gets one turn. And it didn't take me very long to realise that Dad's turn took a, a lot longer than my turn <laughs> at Asteroids and, and things like that. But, uh, so, yeah, so that, that was the very early. And then uh, went through you know, IBM PC with the, the two low-density five and quarter inch floppies and <laughs> and uh then i played pool of radiance for what felt like about 10 years because i didn't know what illusionary walls were so yeah so that that was that was my side i, I was very heavy pc gaming uh growing up apart from the atari i pretty much didn't have a console for uh up until the playstation 2 how did both of your tastes kind of evolve as, as you got a bit older and obviously we, we're kind of talking about a, a fairly specific period so far were there any particular titles franchises even genres that you necessarily associate yourselves with early on with me i know it was like monkey island and, and point and click adventures because i did one but that was like it was that whole thing of hey you can do stories and you do the animation and there's little cartoons going on i mean like i love, love shoot 'em ups and all that other stuff as well but like for me it was like oh it's all about stories and characters this is really cool oh yeah because uh and i think that's grown into a lot of the other stuff i've done since in, in other weird kind of ways uh, what Lindsay was after game wise yeah rpgs was my thing for in terms of playing it growing up uh you know going from one of those to the others and you know right through all the gold box series and then you know through boulders gate and planescape and and that but uh you probably couldn't have found a bigger fan of Wing Commander than me, uh, <laughs> where, where I grew up as well. And I still get in trouble from my mum about it occasionally because which is pretty that. Yeah, I'll Wing Commander free when the Kilrathi, you know, pathetic descendant of monkeys, and played. <laughs> I didn't have a, a huge number of VO lines, so that one played a lot. So, yeah, but, uh, it, yeah, it wasn't too too narrow but rpgs and and space flight sims and then right into star control and star control 2 and yeah just all over the place and 55 discs of arge totally doing things to, <laughs> to get games going on the pc i mean you've, you've both mentioned some fantastic titles there and i guess you though slightly focused on different things you, you're both kind of talking about games from a similar-ish sort of window of time and Steve, I think you, you hit the nail on the head there at one point. It's something I hear quite regularly on the show is that people who've kind of been brought up, brought up on games in that same sort of period all talk about that revelatory moment about stories in games and, oh, like, I, you know, there's a story here or, you know, we can do more than just just a single gameplay sort of concept. We can actually expand on that and, and maybe share yeah, some it, sort of story along the way. So was that kind of important for the both of you? I think that's just from the point where you had games where basically they were about simple mechanics like jumping on jumping on other people's heads shooting stuff even when we went to 3d it was very basic interactions and then we get the story stuff like you'll see it and the story story stuff goes back early like you took the early sierra adventures and um all the lucas art stuff and then the later sierra adventures where it sort of becomes much more multimedia and I, yeah at the time multimedia was a horrible word to use but it is that really that it's all about video and and, and dialogue and then character interactions and then the puzzling stuff so you got all these elements in there in a the game and rpgs get that as well like they you see that go into all the different uh, genres like you take some like um get back to monkey island it's a point of click it's about a, a bunch of different puzzles that you have to solve but resident evil at its basis is still walking around solving little puzzles but you get to shoot zombies heads as well so you get yeah. stuff such yes, creeping yeah. out the games and mixing stuff 
I mean, that, I guess that is some, some of my learning to touch type was in Police Quest. Uh, <laughs> like, seriously, like learning to touch type because there are a couple of those timed moments, like use nightstick that you had to type <laughs> quick enough and hit enter before the guy got too close to you. Couldn't do it as a that age kid had to get help to, to type use nightstick quick enough. But uh, um, so, you know, I think there's a, a clear progression through all of the genres that we've just talked about that, you know, the, the story, and there was a story in Pool of Radiance, uh, you know, but it was in half of it was in the manual, in the yeah. journal entries, yeah. right? Uh, and, and that, you know, progressed through, even just through the Goldbox series, so you're having more and more in the game. And then, you know, then you hit Boulder's Gate with voiceover. Yeah, um, and obviously yeah. things really start to escalate from there. And, yeah, and it absolutely. is interesting, like that, you talking about kind of that, that crossover of genre and those sort of things, because obviously, and, and Steve, you mentioned RPG amongst amongst all that, like that in itself is still kind of treated as a standalone genre, but at the same time, we see RPG systems in so much these days that I yeah, guess we're totally. starting to get to a point where, where lines, sorry, yeah, lines are starting to get a little bit blurry these days. You could look at, you know, I guess one of the most recent releases in Forza Horizon 5, and you can say, oh, there's RPG systems here, and there's this here, and there's this there, despite the fact that at its core, you could call it a, or label it a, a driving or a, a car game or you know whatever kind of definition you want to use racing um but there's so much else in there like it's we're at this fascinating point where that concept that you described a moment ago and how we might have just seen elements of one or two different things before now it's just you, you can basically throw the kitchen sink at it in you know in a nice respectful way i don't mean that in some sort of derogatory yeah, yeah, sense totally. but you can throw absolutely anything in there and form these beautiful cohesive holes Exactly. I think something important with that as well is to recognise that any kind of RPG is a grind. I mean, that, yep. that's the whole point of it. You, you, you're doing things pretty much repetitively to get better, uh, whether you're min-maxing your characters or not, and, you know, call out to Pool of Radiance with my wizards with 18 strength and constitution and everything else. <laughs> uh, but, you know, it is a grind. There is a lot of the games these days where, you know, and it, I don't mean this in a negative way, but a lot of the games is a grind. I mean, Far Cry, you know, Far 100%. Cry Six. How many how many side missions are the same thing with different dressing? Yeah. You know, it's all to the purpose of you know filling up the environments and in a fashion where you're not uh, having to create bespoke elements for every single thing. You know, uh, let's be real. It's an accurate an accurate representation of real life. Everything is a grind. <laughs> Oh, if you want to do production That's... in game dev, you know. <laughs> <laughs> um, so was there a game for either of you, and it might have been Pool of Radiance in your case, Lindsay, um, that maybe put you on the path to actually pursuing time in the industry yourselves? Again, Lindsay, specifically with you, I noted as I was kind of doing a bit of research beforehand that you were studying zoology there at one point, uh, which I guess you could argue I... couldn't be further from, from video games. Um, I, I have my Bachelor of Science Zoology, mate, which I, I passed the university by counting fish. Congratulations <laughs> on that. But um, how like, how did you both find your way into games in the first place? Was, was there a particular title or just a collection of experience that guided you that way? Was it a bit of dumb luck? Was it What, what kind of happened for the both of you? I'll start because my story is much shorter. <laughs> okay. it, it was dumb luck. Uh, and I, I needed a job, and my brother was actually employed at Chrome, and All right. uh, he got me an interview for, in QA at, at Chrome, and, and then I rusted on, and I've been there since. <laughs> oh, he's done. It. I remember when Lindsay had to decide whether he was going to go leave at the end of the year or doing Taiwan, and there was that I either go back to doing the, the academic stuff or do I stick around here? And we we're all like, I oh, stick around here, man. It's great. We love having you here. 
I just remember that that I think it was just before Christmas in two thousand and two. Would that have been it, right, Linz? Uh Yeah, it's about right. I, I actually did technically quit, but then the job fell through. All <laughs> <laughs> oh, right, but he came back to us like a prodigal son. Um, but yeah, yeah, for me, the game that started it was definitely Monkey Island because we were playing that, and I guess, like I said, it's like I was doing comics at the time not making a lot of money but this is just after the comics black and white industry crash of the early 90s yeah okay so that so i was doing that and i'd um i'd worked on a movie of all things which is really cool but then i realized no i don't really like want to work on the movie the hours are terrible and there's a lot of driving around but and i really want to make games because so monkey Island came along it's like this is what i want to do and i met up with john passfield and we started doing a not a game like Monkey Island. It was a platforming game called Zom- uh, Halloween Harry, where you shoot zombies and stuff. And then we did later on. We did Amazon. Um, sorry, later on we did a plat- uh, point-and-click adventure called Flooded Amazon Queen, which you know was like Monkey Island, and that was the first real game we did. Uh, sort of got us on the path to making games. Yeah. And That's. That was yeah, true. I, I, I know I've been flippant with my stuff, but uh, as a kid, you know, I did, I did, you know, what would now be called, you know, indie homebrew stuff with with friends at school and that oh, sort yeah, of okay, stuff. Cool. If there was a, you know, most of my stuff <laughs> of that was actually more on the audio side of things, uh, with with mods and Scream Tracker and that sort of stuff. I remember uh, those days. But, yeah, <laughs> uh, but the uh, probably the 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 game which I could peek to at once that that I could point to as much as I've talked about Pool of Radiance that was a, uh, man, that'd be great to do that, would actually be Star <laughs> Control 2. Um, Star Control 2 just, you know, it had it all in terms of just the the arcade combat, but the humour and the, the story and, you know, saving the galaxy. And uh, and it also had an absolute kick-butt ad in Dragon Magazine, uh, which was one of the, the Dungeons & Dragons magazines at the time, uh, which was, a, uh, you know, Star Wars-esque painting, uh, which represented absolutely nothing like what was actually in the game, but it was a really good ad. And I, uh, I, I do remember sitting there going, oh, man, it'd be great to do that. It must have been when I was like 12. Actually, uh, Lindsay, I think that was actually a John Berkeley painting that they used for the Star Control ad. So the guy who did the Star Wars posters in the, on the LPs did the uh, Star Control. Uh, that makes sense. Right. <laughs> I, guess, I mean, with the with the games that the both of you have mentioned so far, I, I'm certainly imagining a lot of people on our Player 2 team that are just, if they didn't already have a high regard for the both of you, it's enhanced further now because the, the games that you've both been discussing so far is making a lot of friends over here at Player 2. So, uh, great, but, so I can only go downhill from here. <laughs> well, yeah, who, who knows? You could completely blow the whole thing up from here. But no, that's not the case because of all the awesome titles that you've worked on along the way, and we'll, we'll be getting to those very shortly. So, So Chrome itself... Steve, you're there from day one. Lynn's not that long after, a year or two in. Was that about right? About a year after uh, you came along. Yeah, 2001, June, June 2001. So just past 20 years with you. Yeah. So getting getting started in the first place, like how did that, Steve, since you were there from day one, like how did that actually come about? Well, before Chrome, we were like, uh, it was John Passwell and I, we were a company called, uh, first we were Interactive Binary Illusions and then we changed our name to GWiz Entertainment which is still around technically. And we were struggling to find work at that point because the PlayStation had come out and it was very hard to get PlayStation dev kits and stuff in Australia yep. if you were a nobody developer. Um, we were doing some stuff on PC, doing like early um, voodoo graphics, uh, 3D adventure stuff, like basically like a Resident Evil game on a PC. And we got into, um, what was it? Next Gen Magazine, which is like the, the premier 
cool, like basically Edge magazine in America. And uh, so we had a few people come to visit us based on just this little tiny uh, thing about the uh, demo we had on this covetous demo and a little tiny article they did. So we had some people come by and then in 1998, uh, Robert Walsh, who's now was obviously the CEO of Chrome, he was looking for some developers to do a bodyboarding game and he'd gone all around, pretty much gone around the world and no one was very keen on doing the, uh, like a 3D wave thing. And he came to visit us. Someone said, oh, you should visit these guys in Brisbane of all things, because while she was on the Gold Coast, <laughs> it's like he'd gone everywhere else to find stuff, Melbourne, Sydney, found no one. And then they said, oh, this guy, these couple of guys in Brisbane, you should go check out. So he came to visit us and um, said, yeah, we, we, we were like, uh, well, we're pretty much going to shut up shop, but we could try taking this gig, even though it's not something we're that super interested in, but the idea of doing a cool wave sounds fun and we could do some stuff with it. So we did the bodyboarding project and that went really well. And then after we finished that, Robert goes, you know, we should start up joint forces and like do a proper company where we take it really seriously. Because previously for us, it was just like, we're making games. Hey, ha, ha. And they came along and it's like, okay, we'll do the business thing properly and find publishers. And yeah, right. So in November 99, we formed Chrome. And, and never um, looked back since? I'm always looking back. Then always looking forward and left and right before we cross the road as well. I suppose well. I'm asking you to look back a fair bit today, but... <laughs> Our peripheral vision is... <laughs> yeah. Exactly. You always got to keep an eye <laughs> on the surroundings. Um, so, as I said, you, you're both there from a very early point and, Linz, as you said, you came in through QA, but you both, I guess, despite being within the same business there, come from slight, like kind of focus on slightly different disciplines. Would that be fair to say? Totally, yeah. My, my background's animation and art and a bit of design... And, obviously design and stuff but it was from that more of the art side of stuff and, uh, and the less that I do on art the better for everyone <laughs> for everyone <laughs> <laughs> um, and so what has it been like with all, all these years through Chrome coming from those two different perspectives and bring your your two different uh, you know quite distinct skill sets to the fore what have you both seen over the years in terms of the growth and how things have changed and obviously we've as an Australian industry we've seen a lot of change throughout throughout that period even that chrome the chromes existed from you know the impacts of the global financial crisis to the uh, the impacts that came from that to the the blow, uh, blow up of the indie scene these days what's it been like as i guess people who've been so established in this industry for such a long time and this local scene specifically what's it been like observing that from your positions it's been interesting i mean i I know going from when I started out, there was no place to learn about making computer games. Um, or in fact, there was no companies to go work for originally. That's why we had to form our own company in the first place. To when we started Chrome, we were getting the first batch of guys out of the local uh, courses who had learned about making computer games. So you had sort of guys that have, guys and girls who have actually you know, been taught some stuff and they've learned it from a different way. So they've got a slightly different, like for me, it's the it was the wild west. You just like, go and I want to do, learn how to do 3D models. I'll have to look it up and work it out. I do it myself to this is how you do 3D models. And it's sort of it's like this process. Structure. Yeah, structure and process that we didn't have originally. Yeah, just try and work it out. And I think that's grown more and you've got more people who have like now, and, and this is the thing I use with as well, with when we were doing the first tie game, there weren't a lot of 3D platform games to work from. So you didn't really know everything we were doing was like, well, how do we do this? Well, we'll do a take a bit of that and a bit of this. Yeah. Uh, now, 20 years later, you've got people who are looking at, there's been 20 years of platforming games and stuff that's, you know, this element works, this element works, don't do that, that doesn't work. So they're, 
they've learned from that sort of stuff. Um, so that we learned sense. by making lots. We made by, no, we learned by making tons of mistakes. Uh, whereas guys are like, hey, don't make these mistakes. Do these instead. And so you've got a different perspective on stuff, which is great. And now also, the diversity of people coming into the industry is great. I think that's amazing. But you're getting all these cool different ideas for games from people from different backgrounds, and that that just brings a lot more um, texture to any game you have. Make it's not just oh, sort sure. of one vision. Uh, so yeah, I just like that growth. With, that it's not this weird kind of side thing. You know, oh, computer game, like you'd be kind of frowned upon like but, it might have been previously. Yeah, now you've got people who've come in and they've grown up with computer games and their parents have grown up with computer games. Um, so it's not that weird side thing. And I really love that about it as well. And, and, and sort of touching, touching a different element to, to Stephen Mack because I think he's covered that pretty well. I think the um, changes in technology for creating uh, games oh, yeah. in terms of the engine stuff, I mean, it's just, it's ridiculous now with both you know things like unity and unreal and the asset store and the the capabilities that you have of of getting something that is uh, much higher quality for you know less dollars per quality if you want to put it that way yeah um, yeah still still not easy to make something good but but the 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 leg up and the ease of of uh startup of that stuff is just amazing compared to uh, and i guess that ties into what steve was saying about you know there weren't all that many other things around, so we did a bit of this, did a bat, bit of that, did a bit of the other. And there's certainly just so many tools that are available yeah. to you now that, from engine to audio to animation to the entire the entirety of uh, Adobe Suite, right? Yeah, uh, but not just tools. Things, yeah, not just tools, but good tools like stuff yeah. that actually is really nice to make the workflow easy, as opposed yeah. to and, struggling with the tools in the early days. And now you know the the AI side of things for for upscaling and things like that uh the content aware fill in photoshop i mean yep even i can use that one uh yeah right the, okay uh the other side to it as well though is the the downside to to all of that which is that uh, it used to be that there was like a not a minimum viable product but a minimum threshold of what had to be in a first release for it to have a chance of being successful and that is a lot higher now. Oh, for uh, sure. You can't get away with releasing a game without, you know, it used to be you had to do A, B, and C. Now it's onto about O in the yeah. alphabet. It has to be there in day one. Otherwise, you're, you're, already, you're already behind. You're already disadvantaged. Yeah. yeah. The expectations have risen along with all the stuff that, as the tools get better, the expectations get better for what you have for the same price. And That's analytics. It. Yeah. <laughs> oh yeah, that's a whole other kettle of fish, right? And, and, um, and data analysis and data scientists and yeah. Yeah, it's so multifaceted these days. And I guess in, in different ways, you've both kind of touched on what my next point was going to be. So you've both uh, spoken about, obviously, Lindsay, you were talking about the, the technology changes there. And Steve, you were, t- you were talking about the like anyone new coming into the industry and the structure and the support systems that are around them in terms of education and upskilling. As people who've been been in the business for, for a long time and have, have kind of existed in both of those sort of spaces. You've, you've presumably in early days taken on people that didn't really have much experience at all and are just, as you said, kind of learning on the fly and learning through failures versus those who are coming in with this this base of, uh, of, of at least knowledge. Maybe not necessarily ap- uh, the greatest amount of application yet because they haven't spent too much time in the industry, but they've there's a lot of theoretical knowledge there. How does that... Do you find that that's had a significant impact on the way you approach 
designing or developing a game because of what you've got at your disposal. And, and again, obviously, there's the you know all those different layers of um, when we're talking about Unity or Unreal and and the expectations that everyone has straight out the gate, those day one expectations. But like, how has that had a significant impact on even just the way you from square one? How do we approach this thing because we've got all these skills that we just never had back in the day? Uh, I think on the design side of stuff, you don't limit yourself initially by what you, you, the tools are going to be. Like, you'll go, okay, I want to do a 3D game with uh, character animation. That's going to say it's a platforming game and I'm going to have lots of dialogue. You work all that stuff out and then you sit down and go, okay, well, how can we make, what can we make out of this? And that's when the production side of stuff comes and say, well, that's going to be too expensive. And then you limit, not limit yourself, but you readjust what your key values are in a game. Yeah. Because you had budgets to deal with and stuff. Um, but you, I always like aim higher and then pull yourself down to a spot where you can make it and you'll, still, you'll have something better than aiming low and just like, oh, well, we're going to do a 2D game that's going to use 8-bit um, pixel art from the asset store and that's 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 the limit. Um, and then try and scale up from there. Yeah, you know, you, you sort of go for the, go big. You're never going to reach the biggest thing you do anyway because aim for it and you... Well, that bar keeps changing anyway. That's that's, true, you know, true. that's the the nature of the business. So I think any sort of creative um, a field that that bar will constantly keep rising as someone else finds a way to exceed whatever might have been considered the benchmark previously. All of a sudden, everyone's <laughs> expectations recalibrate, and and even your own successes that you have over the journey. You know, you, you achieve one thing, like okay, well, I've got to better that next time. And so, I understand that logic of trying to set the bar as high as possible, and then yeah, potentially have to. Well, not settle's not the right word, but. Um, understand potentially where you're at and what you can do. Yeah, and, and, and the stuff you're aiming for, you don't always even get anywhere close. And it doesn't. Sometimes you fail miserably, and you've got to change, like on a, on a turn on a dime. Like I'll use tie two as an example. We had the driving around element in there, and I think originally we had these arrow maps on the ground, um, where we would just draw arrows on as you're driving on the road to show you which way to go, and that was a total pain in the ass to put together. And the yeah. The poor guy who's doing the level stuff was but nearly but nuts doing that. Huh. Uh, but it didn't work. It just, it, it was kind of like, you never see the arrows properly because you're going downhill or they wouldn't show up properly. And then I think Grand Theft Auto came out and was like, oh, well, they've got a little mini map. That's probably easier for us to do something like that. So we gave that a go and that worked. So that was like, we chucked out a whole lot of work we did, which, you know, was and not the, a good thing. And the crazy taxi, huge beams of light. Yes, oh, they yeah. worked good too. So yeah, it's, you never know what is, where you're going to end up. It's like you might aim over there in a certain direction, but you might have to go like 90 degrees to the side to actually get something that works. I think another part which touches on what your question was as, as well is that there are, you know, software development is um, pretty pretty much at the front of uh, project management. Uh, yep. Ideological wars, uh, as, as well as trying... Uh, <laughs> new ways and methods of doing it. Uh, so, I mean, you've got your whole Agile and, and Kanban boards and, you know, your, your, your poker and all those sorts of things. So I think there is a lot more um, focus on collaborative um, design than maybe it was 20 years ago. Um, it was maybe a little bit more monolithic and that has pros and cons, I will point, point out. Um, yeah, for sure. Uh, but but I think that that is then there with, with the people coming through that have you know like you said maybe not too much hands-on experience but have been um you know walking the walk through the, the various degrees and courses and, and things like that and there is a focus on 
you know, that they have to have an understanding of those methods and madness and, and you know, how it fits together. And, and that certainly is something which I think is uh, beneficial coming through because they, um, yeah, every company and, and every group has their own little flavor of doing things and, and method of, of putting it together and, and managing all these things. But with that basis that they've got from coming in, you know, they're, they're not starting from nothing. And, and I think they've got a good overview, generally speaking, of, of how those sorts of things work. And, and that really helps, I think, in getting them on board and up to speed and, and working. Uh, with wherever they're at, because you know there's there's that common language and, and knowledge there that you know it, it's not just coming from left field at them straight off the bat in their first day of work. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. Um, now, obviously, we, we've touched on Ty quite a few times so far, and we're gonna, we're going to be giving Ty and uh, all the all the games from that uh, from that franchise a, a little bit of time pretty soon. But just before we got to that, I wanted to wade into some of the licensed work that you'd done over the journey as well. So. Um, there's a lot of time for anyone who wants to go diving into the kind of history anyone listening that wants to dive into the history of chrome and all the titles there's a lot there some really impressive uh, license stuff as well as the tie games and various other titles you've worked on along the journey as well but on the on the license side what was it like getting to work with the likes of star wars for example for force unleashed um there's you know there's jimmy neutron there's there's several other licenses you've worked on over the journey if i you know, if i started rattling them off we'll, we'll be here a while um what was that like? That period like, especially because intermingled, no, spliced within that time, you were working on some of your own IP. What was it like in the form of Ty, for example? What was it like working on those titles for uh, for you both? We were both working on Ty at the time, but I know I was involved in getting some of the the, the I call it getting the gigs. Oh, yeah, okay. Drag me around, <laughs> drag me around as the uh, creative director. It's like, ah, oh, blah, blah, talk about stuff and talk to the, the, the production people at their end. Yeah, you know, I went to uh, Mattel to talk to the Barbie team. Yeah, the, the people in charge of the Barbie franchise. It's like that was interesting. Uh, and then the Star Wars stuff, or having lunch with Guillermo del Toro and Mike Mignola about Hellboy, as they talked about what they wanted to do to see from the games and stuff. Oh, I did forget about um, Hellboy. Good one. And yeah, that's also uh, a pretty cool experience too. Um, what was the other guy? The guy with the car, Michael Bay, because we had oh, the Transformers, yeah. so we got to meet Michael Bay, and he was interesting. Um, did something explode as he walked into the room? No, he was actually really quiet. And actually quite a reason. Yeah, he's he's not the kind of guy you imagine, but he is still big yeah, in right. show. But but um, I found he was really interesting. Um, and uh, Guillermo del Toro was great because he was exactly how he comes across as this big happy um, uh, bundle of energy. Of all this. Yeah, he was exactly like that. We we actually when we were doing Force Unleashed, we went to E three before it was announced and we were walking around the, the LucasArts stand and we go, that's, that's, that's Guillermo, Guillermo del Toro. It's like, and he was there, he had like a badge or something else. He went up and said hi. And he's like, he's all excited seeing all the Star Wars stuff. So, um, that's pretty cool. Yeah, and, um, Zack Snyder, we took to, to show him some stuff and talked about stuff. And he's talking about how his kids were playing Gears of War. It's like, I'm probably a bad dad. It's like, nah. So, um, that side of stuff, all the license stuff, just talking to the directors was great. Cause I got to meet a lot of, uh, George Miller. We were talking about oh, yeah? stuff. Yep. So, you know, there's that's the fun bit, but I think the other kind of fun bit is all the production guys and girls you meet on from like all the different publishers. Well, I know we've made a lot of friends that working on licensed titles that we still talk to like 15, 20 years later. And I know Lindsay's the same, it's just there's people you meet up, and it's like, oh, because you go through the production process and then like 
they, they go through as much hell as you go through to get the game done because you want to make it good. So you, you build these friendships up and that's kind of the cool thing about working on the licensed products and, and your own stuff as well because we guys at EA that we went on tie still talk to a lot of those guys as well. So That's cool. Similar sort of experience for you, Lindsay? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I, I wasn't involved in as, as many of those different franchise early meetings and, and things like that. But uh, uh, certainly with Force Unleashed, that was a, uh, yeah, who doesn't want to make a Star Wars game? It was awesome. <laughs> yeah. Oh, yeah. I remember. Actually, that leads back to, sorry, that leads back to my thing about the, the people you know. So uh, we only had a Christmas break before when we were doing Tie 4 or whatever. And then we got an email when we got back to work in early January, it's like, oh, a friend of ours who we worked with on tons of previous projects is at LucasArts now. He goes, would you like to work on a LucasArts project? I'm like, yeah, okay, send the stuff through. That, that, that sounds, to me, I'm like, yep, that, oh, whatever it is, we'll take it. But yeah, acting cool. Yeah, send it through. And then we got two proposals. One was for a Indiana Jones game for the Nintendo Wii, I think it was going to be. Yeah. And the other one was Star Wars, the Star Wars The Force Unleashed. <laughs> like I read the specs. The indie one was like, oh, it's cool. I love indie and all that stuff. I really do love indie. But Star Wars. The Wii, the Wii one was like, the controls were like, oh, I don't know what I don't want to do for the controls. That sounds overly complicated. Star Wars ones, lightsaber flying around. And it's like, and I went to Robert and said, um, Robert, we're going to go after this aggressively. And I remember we were talking to Lens and the, the guys on who, who were doing Tide 4 at the time. It's like, we're going to spend a couple of weeks put together a demo. And everyone just jumped in wholeheartedly, putting the demo together. And, um, I think we had about two and a half weeks into the three-week period, and we set up a, the what we the build we had, which you could run around a forest, slicing down trees, throwing lightsabers, doing these cool explosion effects. As Mara Jade, as Mara Jade, and um, you could fly a Jedi starfighter around, and we chucked that in in like a couple of days. It was nuts, but we said that to them, and then like uh, the next day, we got a call back saying, "Yeah, can you guys come to uh, San Francisco next week?" And by Tuesday, we were actually in San Fran, wasn't it? We, we just hopped, yeah, on right. plane, hopped on there and we were there with this big, big day long meeting with all the internal team at LucasArts. They were talking about all their stuff. And it was so cool. It was like, we didn't really know what they were planning. And they showed us the stuff they planned. It's like all the same sort of stuff that we thought would be really cool in a Star Wars game. And they had the demo, our demo running on like a bunch of machines around the office. And it had been running for like three or four days straight and it hadn't crashed. And we're like, wow, this is really amazing. This is going all right. Yeah, and then yeah, so it, was, it just it was um, it was it was fate. That's what it was. It was destiny. Yeah, it was the prophecy. It's the prophecy foretold. Hey, that's a, that's a good way to put it. It sounds really cool. So working on licensed properties, obviously, especially in that two thousand sort of period, we, we kind of have a, a a clear idea, I think, of how things work these days. Where there, there does seem to be a lot of structure, and we you know in terms of you know if you're working on a Marvel title, for example. Marvel are quite heavily involved, and if we hit, you know, you hear what the likes of Insomniac are saying about their experiences and those sort of things. Working on the likes of Force, uh, uh, Force Unleashed, and, and other licensed titles over the journey, were those relevant pro- uh, property holders? Were they really quite involved, or did you still have a degree of scope to do more or less whatever you wanted? Not not a hundred percent that way, but you know, Wild West style. That was one of the awesome things about Force Unleashed as a, as a product. So one of the big drivers that LucasArts uh, required from it was 30% different. So this was that uh, as, a, as a product group, it wasn't meant to just be that on the 
you know, the PlayStation 2, that it was just the same product as the, the Xbox 360 and PlayStation 3. And the PSP version wasn't meant to be the exact same as the PS2. It was 30% different. So there was a new element to Force Unleashed on each thing. And that, for us, meant that, uh, you know, we have whole levels that were specific to our version of the game uh, for single-player PlayStation 2 uh, and, and on the PSP. And then the Wii came along as, a, as an extra thing after that. We got to do it all. We 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 did all of the design on those. We you know obviously it was very close. You know we were daily communication with LucasArts back yep. and forward, and they were very heavily involved, obviously on the script and stuff. Because you know even though we had new levels, it still needed to tie into the the overall story and stuff. But you know we got to we got to put our own stamp. You know Steve got to design a few Jedi and for for a couple of Sith. Uh, then you know Lucas even made some. Uh, um, figurines of, of some of our character designs and stuff like that. So uh, that, for me, is probably my favourite in terms of licensed property, just because of that, you know, it wasn't uh, anything other than us putting our, you know, our own stamp on, on yeah. Star Wars. You know, it was awesome. I think the funny thing with Force Unleashed was initially it started out it was going to be a port of the next-gen game. And that's, a, that's what we went into it thinking it was going to be. They're making this cool next-gen game. We'll port it. And then very quickly we found out it's like, yeah, well, we because of all the cool extra technology we put into the next gen game for the 360 and PS3 one, uh, we're we're not really ready with gameplay and stuff. So we'd like you guys to go off and do your own thing, and make oh, your own enough. game. So it's like, oh, okay, well, we weren't expecting that. And I but far more was... exciting, I'd imagine. Sorry, but far more exciting as a result, I'd imagine. That was scary. <laughs> That's for sure. Yeah, it was yeah. Like, you said, you want to make stuff up. And I remember there was a conversation I had, we had with, uh, I think, Hayden at one point. He's like, go ahead and make up your own stuff. As in, because as a fan, it was like, I want to take this element and this element and this element. And I was very much looking back at all the stuff that was done previously that I loved. Uh, and there was just this conversation. It was like, oh, okay, let's, okay, we'll try and do some new stuff. So I think the first thing we did was like I designed a, a background spaceship, like a, a transport carry thing. And then when we were doing the Jedi Temple, it's like, it was, make your own Sith boards up because we were looking from like KOTOR and some of the old stuff. It's like, oh, yeah, okay. this guy and this guy, and this would be really cool because the, the Jedi Temple Trials and it's all kind of, and it's like, okay, no, I'll, I'll make up my own characters and do stuff that I think would be cool to add to the Star Wars universe. And um, now have extensive Wikipedia entries. It just wasn't. It's like, I love looking, I've seen people, um, like I did one design for Stormtroopers. Uh, like, I just want to do something that's like a Scout Trooper because yeah, Scouts are the best. So it was like a mix between a Star Trooper and a Scout Trooper. Uh, and then working with Lucas was great because we said, we've got this new character. Um, we think they should be like Navy commandos. And like then Hayden would weigh in and write up some cool script stuff. And we had this, uh, another Star Trooper was like a, I called it the phase three one. It was basically between the, the Storm Troopers and the clone troopers, the phase two clone troopers. Cause it was that era. We wanted to have something that was sort of merging across there. And they were in the 501st uh, colors. And then Hayden said, oh, they should be Triton Squad because they they're in the comics and they've been used a couple of times. They said, it's like, so there's a lot of, we, we say, this is a cool thing. And they go, oh, okay, we'll use this. Um, and that was like tremendous fun. Like we, there were levels we put together that we just, there was a uh, homage to the stuff we loved. One was the Cloud City level, which we had a great time with. It had Mandalorians and then the Basilisk War Droids. And we had uh, a Gungan in there. He was actually a tough, cool Gungan who, um, half his face shredded by Jar Jar. 
Uh, and, and, and then on, on top of that as well, I mean, that's just the single player. And then, you know, with the PSP, they with the, the four-player uh, local multiplayer and that. And so there were uh, the, the boys that we had, uh, the guys down in Adelaide, um, did an awesome job on, on that. So they were all uh, mostly ex-Ratbag. Yeah, I was going to say they're the Ratbag um, crew, right? Yeah. Yep. Uh, and they, they, you know, got the PSP stuff up and going with the, the engine team and, and then, you know, got everything together with, like, the historical missions and, you know, playing as as Luke on Jabba's skiff in, with force unleashed levels of force and that. <laughs> it's, it's nuts. Every, everyone got to have a little bit of, of that fun and, and putting their own stamp and things cool. on the, the Melbourne guys got to do the Wii controls and all the dual mode stuff with the extra levels for that. So each of the teams, so like, like the PS2 team was like the, I wouldn't say, it was the lead team that we were doing the main storyline stuff. And the Adelaide guys doing the PSP and adding all their stuff in, historical missions, the uh, Order 66 stuff. Huge game for the, for the PSP because we had to have that, um, I think it was actually 15% and there was a Sony mandate at the time that you had to make a, a certain amount different. Yeah. And then we did the Wii one, which we snuck in and showed LucasArts, Here's, we could do a Wii version of this. And they're like, oh, okay, that sounds cool. Um, and, then, and then the Melbourne guys on that, uh, with you know the extra grunt that the Wii had with with bump maps and bits and pieces through there, and, yeah. Uh, like Steve was saying, that you know the Wii mode um, motion controls for uh, the lightsaber swinging, which you know would be exciting. Early Wii mode, no no Wii motion plus, so it was you know figuring that stuff out was awesome. And then yeah, you know, had their multiplayer mode as well for the dual mode, and yeah, it was great. I mean, like a massive credit to what you both and and everyone else involved did with those titles because i initially picked up i was like a day one adopter for a ps3 and so when you know, um when the title first launched i, I grabbed it on the next gen version because to me that felt like the the logical sort of place to go let's get the the amped up version so I, I played and had a great time um on my ps3 until i went to a friend's place who was playing the wii version and i'm sitting there looking going i like i've just finished this game i don't remember that and i don't remember <laughs> that and then of course there's the the motion on top of it and i'm going oh hang on so I, within like a day or two, I went and grabbed that version as well and then went through it. Like, massive credit just personally to what you guys had achieved with those um, those takes on the title because I thought they were fantastic. It was enough to get me to go buy a second copy of the game at well, full remember price. That, remember that we had just had done three platforming action-adventure games before that with the TIE series. So we, we had a lot of experience. We did actually rewrite the engine we were doing a tie four and that was like we rewrote a lot of the stuff to make the gameplay better and that's what allowed us to make force unleashed so cool and yeah. we would just put more stuff on screen than we'd ever done before in any other games um but i remember there was one conversation early on to do with this where it was like we were sitting around the phone and they go yeah we've got this really cool idea that you could throw the lightsaber and it'll come back and you can catch it and i should have looked at lynn's going you mean like a boomerang <laughs> it's like <laughs> yeah 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 so oh yeah i think we can handle that yeah right we've done that <laughs> yeah so uh, there were a lot of very very painful lessons learned especially on tie two and, and tie three that yeah lent themselves to uh force unleashed and that's not saying force unleashed wasn't a, a slog and hard effort but there were some some real painful lessons in, on those previous games that the paid off a good place to to be able to approach force unleashed with i guess a little bit more level of i don't know uh, confidence confidence but yeah uh, as confident as you can ever be when you're working on an ip as big as star wars yeah i mean maybe it was just a little bit more uh you know treating it not seriously but you know it it was 
it was uh, uh, something that had been thought through a little bit more, maybe than, yeah. than some of the previous stuff. Yeah, great kid. Don't get cocky. I think you should be a cheap. <laughs> yes, very good. Perfect, perfect use of that line. So we've danced around Ty for a long time, and obviously you just highlighted that prior to Force uh, to, to working on Star Wars, you had developed the three Ty games. How did that idea come about? Ty is one of the one of the most beloved titles to come out of this country. It's still like you still see, and obviously the the success, uh, success of the Kickstarters so far for for both the HD remasters. There's a lot of love out there for Ty. How did the idea for Ty first come about? So what happened with that was in 2000 we were working this other game called Cat Burglar, which was like a 60s female thief, yep. awesome powersy sort of thing. We had a hell of a time trying to get publishers interested in it because No One Lives Forever was also doing the rounds. And the idea at that time was, you can't have two games with set in the 60s with a female lead. That, it's like, that's Getting impossible. Getting each other's way. Well, I, I think there was actually one meeting the guys came back with and said, oh, there's another character with red hair that's a thief. It's like, yeah, they just mixed us up with us. Yeah, so, okay, fair enough. It's like, <laughs> uh, I guess. So it came... That Christmas time, uh, Robert had gone and visited some friends at, at Sony. Like we had a producer friend there. And he said, "Well, we're kind of look doing some platforming games." And I just remember that before we started Chrome, we wanted to work on like a cool 3D platformer because I was a big fan of Banjo Kazooie and Spyro and that sort of games. We really wanted to work on something like that. And we were just sitting around the, the lounge area on a Friday afternoon, just you know, chatting about stuff and. So we had this like, oh, let's we should do our own platforming game because it was coming up to Christmas and we just thought it'd be fun to do our little, get a little group of people and just chuck some stuff together over the break because, you know, why have a break when you can make more games? Exactly. And we were young <laughs> and we didn't know any better. But um, we were just sitting there, it's like, oh, what should we do? And the funny thing was like, it was pretty much unanimously, we should do a Tasmanian Tiger as the main character. And so like, everyone's like, yep. It was, there was no argument. It sort of came out, it was like, I always remember the, the memory of it. It's like it felt like the multiple people just said the same thing at once. It was just this kind of, this is what we do. And then... Um, and it all just made sense to everyone. Yeah, it was so logical. And one of the guys goes, he should throw boomerangs. It's like, oh, that's insanely good. We should do that, definitely. And I know um, we didn't have a name for it at the time, but I, I went and did some sketches and there was like, I did about a half a dozen like scribbles that just weren't working. And then did this um, one image of Ty and that was it. It just all gelled. And then he got the name. It was Ty the Tazzy Tiger because we named him after Tyrone from uh, She, who's now Pickpock. Yeah. Um, the, the two founders of that was Tyrone and Mario. It's like, oh, if they got a Mario already, we should have Tyrone. So that's Makes where sense. Ty got his name. And then we just went off and we built some 3D models. And uh, uh, we had a swamp level. And we just we were running around that because we had the, uh, the cat burglar thing was a 3D game. So we had the basic engine for that to actually get a character up and running. And it's like, so did you show that to people? People just understood that and it clicked with everyone you'd show it to. Publishers, the other game developers at Chrome, all the guys. It's like, oh, we know what we understand what that is. The other game is like it's a stealth game and we don't get it. But Ty's like, oh cute cartoon cute cartoon character. He runs around throws boomerangs. The bad guys were frills, which were actually um, I lifted them from an assignment I did back at art college. Oh, okay. <laughs> There's like draw an Australian character thing. I had this frills superhero character. It's like it's literally the same design as the final frills almost. Um, so I used that stuff, and it's just like it's it just so fell together. It was amazing. And then we started showing. I said we started showing to publishers, and like they just got it. Um, and then the extended bit of that was for the first year we were putting together demos, and we get we we do something cool, and then we get this feedback saying, oh, on PlayStation Two, we're seeing the games are going to be doing 
they're large open worlds. And it's like, okay, well, how do we do a large open world? So we go back and do a new level, which is like this huge area that you see it for miles and miles. Um, and we just kept getting feedback from publishers going back. I think going to Christmas, we had the two publishers to decide on. And then I think we picked EA. And once we started working with EA, it sort of, it was interesting because then we had the, here's the Australian side of stuff that we were doing anyway. And they come back saying, yeah, make it more Australian. And like, so we start putting in the, lang the lingo and stuff so that it, there's all this- uh, that, is, that Aussie flair. Yeah, and it was like, they kept pushing us to do that. And then once they said, do that, it was like, okay, you asked for it. And then it sort of, it was like a waterfall of all the old TV shows and stuff that we'd, you know, we'd all grew up watching. So the funny thing was like, you, you'd mention quotes from old TV shows and everyone on the team that got it. Cause you know, we're all from the, like, the area. So it's like, everyone was roughly the same age. And yeah. like the TV shows you'd watch and like, oh, well like this, this is Maury. He's like, um, Murray Fields on the, uh, yeah, cause everyone, Hey, Hey was still around, I think at that point, or it just gone yes. past. So there was that element people knew what you could reference that and the people knew what you were talking about. Um, the, the, and don't forget as well that there was also a heavy influence of the satirical, uh, uh, mix of the old Australian TV shows that was going on as well. Like all the stuff. Oh, yes. <laughs> because you know, it's no coincidence that the, the sergeant's called Bluey, right? Yeah. Uh, for Lucky Grills's show, Bluey, but of course, all of us were probably more familiar as Barjas. Yeah. From a late show. Or uh, Donuts. Which I don't think that I can say many quotes from uh, and keep this as a relatively family friendly uh, podcast. Oh, look, you get, you can go for broke. I'm not too, I'm not too fussed about that, but um, I, I guess. Donuts, big black one. <laughs> like a pit load of dim sims and a bucket of soy sauce. I guess sure. one of the things that, that Steve, you touched on there, obviously, you know, you were referencing the likes of Spyro from that era now. You know, when I was kind of growing up, so I was initially born and bred on the Super Nintendo, but when I was starting to hit kind of those, um, you know, double digits, early teens, those sort of things, we're talking PS1, PS2, that sort of era. So I'd, I'd had a lot of that Spyro style of experience and loved and adored them. And it was just so fascinating. I guess you, you know, talking about how EA was just, make it more Aussie, make it more Aussie, make it more Aussie. That really, really spoke to me. That was really what helped get me in the door when when I first started hearing about the title or seeing it on the shelf was that's the sort of game that I really love playing in a setting or like uh, like you know, with that Aussie flavour that I'm also familiar with. Like It was almost the perfect pairing. Did Was that something that you kind of found, especially within our local market, really helped? I guess so. We didn't really plan any of that, to be honest. Like we were just doing stuff that we thought was cool, yeah. And that we knew, but it, it, yeah, it did resonate with a lot of people, um, and not just here locally. I think it, we got a lot of people. Well, I've you know talked to fans over the years, um, and there's a lot of the responses like, "Yes, I want to come to Australia because I played Thai." Yeah, right. Um, I want to see the place. So people using like <laughs> Beauty Bottle of Bonza is like they use that all the time. They do like messages like, "Yep, okay, cool. We've done our job here." And I think that's interesting that that's happening again now with some stuff like Bluey, where you've got this, you're just basically showing Australia as it is and people are going, oh, well, look, there's all this cool stuff that I didn't even know about. The favorite one is like last month even, we did this thing where we supported the Save the Bilbies and we donated like 5%, well, whatever percentage, I think it was 5%, um, to the thing. And a lot of people are going, I didn't know these were real. It's like, 
yeah, they're real. They're yeah, no <laughs> so people still like. I think people love learning about Australia because it's different enough, but it's not different enough. Um, there's a, there's a touch of familiarity, but then there's these other local elements that's just nowhere else in the world. Yeah, I actually had a really good term for it, but I can't remember what it was. Um, we uh, we also still have people that don't believe us that there's snow anywhere in Australia. <laughs> well, like look at Canberra. This like this just this week snow. In the middle yeah, of November. Hobart had the big fall, didn't they? Most snow ever in November. Yeah, it's nuts. But, yeah, and I mean, yeah. I, haven't, I haven't seen snow here in Melbourne just yet, but it's been just torrential rain for, for weeks, and it's just... Um, it's not what I'd expect at this time of the year, but I'm not going to complain, considering the, the dramas we as a country usually have. Yeah, we haven't had the big storms yet, I don't... Like, not anything... Well, where I am, I haven't had anything nasty. Normally, like, this time of year is, like... Yeah, you get the roof dripping storms coming through at least once or twice. Yeah, no, nothing quite that uh, like that for me yet. But yeah, I mean, so, like it's certainly yeah, inj- injecting that Aussie flavour wherever you can, I think was just a brilliant idea, and it you know I think made Ty and the titles themselves very endearing to everyone. Also, it wasn't like generic cartoon character, which you get a lot of, and a lot of the other games that came out at the same time were not being disparaging to them, but they were just generic cartoon characters. Um, yeah. And yeah, there were a couple of really cool, interesting ones that are just something different. But I think the fact that we did all these cool Australian animals, um, and I, I gotta say, at first I was just doing, I was just doing generic cartoon critters when I was doing them. And then then this great book, which is like Wildlife of Greater Brisbane from the museum, and it's like a this big, thick book of just all the stuff that's just just in Brisbane. I'm like, I didn't know we had that, and I started actually like, okay, well, doing koalas in Thai. They're going to have two thumbs because that's what koalas have. And just little stuff like that, people didn't realize, you know, start actually starting to make stuff feel more like the Grounded actual in something. animals. Yeah. yeah. So things look... We still, still get support requests saying that there's a bug with the 3D model and they have two thumbs. Yeah. <laughs> so <laughs> you mentioned Tie 4 as well. We should probably discuss the story of, of Tie Four and kind of what, what what actually happened there. It was obviously something you were working on, um, conceiving, developing. How did that ultimately? Well, we know how it played out, but um, how did we get to that point? Wait, first up, there are two Tie Fours. To technically, one was a Tie Four we were working on called Gunyip, which was actually not a Thai platforming game. It was yeah, okay. the you flew around in the Gunyips, which were introduced in Tie Three. It was basically the most advanced marsupial air combat game ever. But the idea was like you flew around and things and you, it was basically air combat. Uh, we sounds good to me. It was a cool game. I'm glad we didn't do it because I think the the, kick, the, the kickback against it would have been just so people like would have flipped out because it was just too different. Not what they want from their tie games. Yeah. I mean, if we did it, I, now I've learned if it's something really different like that, you give it a different uh, title. Yeah, okay. So it would be you know, tie air combat, gun yet. As opposed to Tide Four, yeah, makes so, sense. But, uh, yeah, but a few years later, um, we were talking to Microsoft because they were about to launch their new Windows Eight, and we had a friend of ours again, someone we worked with at EA, was now at Microsoft. Like that was fifteen years later, almost. And you know, he's a big fan of Tide, good friend. So well, look, we're doing this stuff. We'd love to have a two D platforming game, and we was like, well, we could do a Tide one. I'm really keen on doing some Tide stuff, and um, again, using like Rayman Legends at the time it came out, which is really cool 2D stuff. But well, that'd be nice to do something like that because I've been trying stuff like that for years, trying to, trying 
trying to do it in 3D software to have like a 2D character that might have modeled, but maybe with a 3D skeleton, so you don't have to animate it by hand. It's like, yeah, I understood. It, it just seemed like the perfect time to try that. Because uh, we could, we only had like, it's a six month project. So that basically was like, okay, well, here's the pitch for a 2D tie game. And for us, it was trying to make it as much like the 3D games as possible, but just chuck out 1D so there's no looking around and stuff. Um, Simple as that, just tossing out 1D, that's it. Pretty much. I mean, it's <laughs> like, what else did we really do on that one? Uh, a lot of it as well was where Microsoft was going with the time with the, you know, it's it's a tablet, it's got touch, but it's also a PC. and Yeah, right. You know, so, you know, a, a lot of work on... Smart glass and all that. Yeah, how, how, the, how the controls can can work with that for touchscreen controls and all the stuff that that touched on with, you know, on-screen virtual controllers and, you know, left side of the screen does this, right side of the screen does that. And so there, there was a lot of stuff to do with, with that sort of thing. And then, you know, I still also have to work with a normal keyboard and normal Xbox controller and, and things like that. And It's a lot uh, to factor Microsoft in. It was also quite big on the asynchronous multiplayer, so they wanted some things with that, which is where a lot of the, like, um, bringing back the, the time attacks uh, yep. from the first game with the rings came in and that and, uh, a lot of Tie 4 was you know taken taken bits that worked for between all three games and and blending those together for, for a mix that was you know suitable for, for things that's, that was on you know the one less dimension yeah. um, you know and getting rid of you know obviously kart racing uh, well <laughs> Mario Kart was 2D but 3D but yeah, getting rid of card racing and those sort of things and getting back to some of the core gameplay and, and platforming and, and, and that sort of stuff. Yeah, we did like use a lot of stuff that uh, we developed on the previous titles, but we was like, oh, we can do this thing now where we have trends. Um, again, there's some stuff in Blake and I'd done where we had like bits that, uh, bits of the environment that fade out, that old 2D game trick. So we, we added that stuff in, the bushes would fade out for secret areas. So we had all that stuff going. Um, I'm really... It's weird. I, I, there's a, a lot of flack over Tie Four because it's, it's Tie Four and it's not the same as Elements. It's not. Yeah, it's not what people knew it to be. But story-wise and all the stuff, the elements in there, there is like it's so tie. It's not funny when you actually play it and actually all the stuff that's in there. Like the mechanics are all there. And, and, and we took we took some stuff that people really liked from the the two tied GBA games as well. Yeah, use similar stuff for that for for Tie Four. Yeah. Okay. Right. There's, so do- there's, there's a history of tie in 2D, if you know what I mean. Yeah, I, it's the third GBA game in HD. That's what I call it. <laughs> do you, do you think like that response was, I guess, just a simple case of people judging a book by its cover when they saw Tie Four and it wasn't what they knew? They just no, people have expectations and stuff, and I don't think we managed that because yeah, okay. Like initially, I think the, um, okay. So the game title for me originally was going to be Tie the Tasmanian Tiger Bush Rescuers as a kind of sequel to Bush Rescue. Yeah. Um, so it gave it a new title. We took that off because because it was launching in a new Windows, basically Windows 8 and a new store there. Yes. So there's there's going to be a lot of people who have no idea what the hell tie the Tasmanian Tiger is. Let's just cut the title back to the first, just Clean the, it up. the name and treat it as like, we're introducing new players to tie and we're also putting a lot of stuff in for the old players. So we had that sort of juggling act there. Um, and then when we put it on Steam, it's like, great. Um, we're not pretending anymore. It's tie four because the story continues on. That's the, that's the, the full part of it. Yeah. So, now my issues I got to deal with is people going, I want to see the new Tie Four on the console. It's like, do you mean the Tie Four that, that we've actually done exists? in 2D, or do you mean Tie Five, which would be the next game in the series in 3D, if we do one? That's the way we'd like to do it. 
and, and as well with it as well coming out on the, the just launched Microsoft store for Windows 8 uh, Microsoft was dealing with their own yeah use with that uh, yep. as well so yeah hey, we were the number two a title on the store like not title number two game the number two app. ranked yeah listed yeah which is pretty awesome that's um, it that is awesome Unfortunately, the store wasn't that big, so it didn't make the money Microsoft wanted, so they didn't talk to us a lot more. Oh, that's just the way it works. It's, it's a, it was like, yeah, on a spreadsheet, it's like, oh, I didn't make the money. Okay. But yeah, but it was number two. What else? It can't go any higher. You can't. So that just happens. And it's like, there's no hard feelings there. We still work with Microsoft and other stuff. Yeah, that's fair. Uh, uh, it's just, yeah, that's just the business side of it. Yeah. Uh, but that did lead to when we got the rights back for Blake in, we uh, talked to. This was before Steam opened up. We talked to Steam um, Valve and said, like, you know, we have the rights for this now. Can we take over the Steam version on PC? Uh, and they said, okay, we'll call that. Set us up as a, a, basically a Steam publisher before you could get in easily. Yeah. Which is great. So we did Blade Kid and we released that. And then because that went really well, and Lindsay has been pushing to do Ty on PC for like well, for a couple of years at that point based on... Um, Sorry. It was basically Indeed. while we were doing all the work for getting episode two for Blade getting released on Steam. Yeah. Um, which was, you know, not quite sit in the box ready, but pretty close to sit. close enough. Ready uh, yeah. for, you know, Konami didn't this, that, the other uh, for the original release. So it was while we were doing that and, and in the the um, interface that there was at, this, at the time, there's basically this little button which said, you know, you've got a free game credit. You can set up a game. I'm like, we should be tired. <laughs> <laughs> so we did. Any excuse, right? <laughs> ah, well, like we wanted to get that because it had been a, a long time since anyone had played it. And, you know, PS2 and GameCube and all that stuff is pretty hard to get a hold of at this point. So people weren't playing it. And we, honestly, we really do love the game, the whole, all three of them. And we just wanted to get that as we play it again. Yeah. And once we started putting it out there, we, we thought, the tricky bit was we decided to like we um denied for a while about do we do early access that's like can, can we do early access because you know we're going to add stuff to the game but it's a finished game we, we, yeah we thought, it's a tricky balancing act yeah we bit the bullet and we went with early access and so okay well, we spent a lot of time just interacting with the the the, the audience people who bought it it's like well we're going to do this and that and we did a lot of We'd have a lot of conversations about quality of life stuff, and then we were upraising as we were upraising all the art, which we had to on Taiwan had to repaint stuff by hand because we didn't have the assets. But we were also doing all this cool stuff with the codes, like well, we could fix up the camera stuff so it's like Tai Two. We can have the new boomerang selected from Tai Two. That'd be really cool. Um, and early access was was really good as well for getting you know Tai fan feedback on those channels yeah. as well, and let alone the fact with you know with our company sizes. It, was and is you know we're not the hugest company in the world these days uh and the hardware compatibility testing on PC <laughs> uh was certainly something that was really beneficial to us for early access as well but so, yeah i think what we spent six months on that basically before we march to november isn't it so it's about six seven months yeah yeah about that and then we um sort of said okay this is released but even the released one, we still added stuff to. Uh, and then we sort of, okay, well, let's do Tai 2 now. And Tai 2 was easier because we had assets. But Yeah, okay. The, like, the funny thing was with Tai 2, we had assets. We found like, oh, we could, we got the stuff we can work with. We got the source stuff. It was still like art-wise, it was like going through directories and like, 
Okay, so this texture looks okay. a bit like bits of this PS Photoshop file. So if I open that one up and look at the layers, okay, if I turn those layers off, I can make that texture again. There's about 30% of the textures were like, you've got to try and find something close and then rework it. And other ones like, yeah, just copy that across and do that. So it was really um, just a lot of it was digging through old file directories and just trying to cobble together what you could. And Yeah, I would open up like two or three uh, windows of like, because it was like working files and someone else's working files and here's the storage files. And I'd be like scrolling through, doing searches, doing stuff. Um, but yeah, it, the funny thing was once we had all that stuff, because we had like source files for models and stuff, it's like, oh wait, there's a bunch of Taiwan stuff here as well. Because um, uh, after we done all the hard work, doing yeah, yeah, the exactly. way around. Like, but oh, we shit. did. So we did find the map. So the, the Taiwan had these maps for the pause screen, and on the first pass through, I just like upscaled them with a the Photoshop filter, and I wasn't particularly happy with it neither were people playing it's like yeah these look it looks like a photoshop filter. It's like yes it is a photoshop filter but we found the maps in tai 2 so one of the updates we did was like hey look here's the, the map files from Let's tai 2 in the high res it's like and, and that was the fun stuff about pc dev in fact well, current dev now where you can actually do patches and stuff and change things and fix it has been a, like a godsend compared to by this day, you could have everything working so it can go off to get checked, see if you can build a gold disc. And if you're not done by then or whatever's done by then, that's it. And after we make the 500,000 discs, if they don't work, it's on you. Oh, yeah, wait, sort it we're out. going to change the PS2 so it won't run under anymore. Oh, yeah. The, uh, the Primline PS2 had a change to uh, one of the bits of hardware which stopped Tie 3 booting on it. Oh, right, fun. okay. Yeah, which which happened a week after we went through their cert sort of thing. It's like, so well, yeah, one week either way, and they tested on a on a slim line, and yeah. <laughs> so yeah, that's what I like about digital stuff. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, Un unpatchable. <laughs> <laughs> so as we cast our eyes beyond Taiwan and two, and and what's been done these days with the remasters, and obviously they've they've made it to the the consoles as well. What are the plans from here? Now, you obviously, the, there is, uh, there's Tie 3, we've got Tie 4 in its kind of different form and what could or couldn't be done with that. And then, Steve, you briefly, and you did make sure to put the, the disclaimer, if we do it, talk about a, a Tie 5, if that were to potentially be a consideration. W what's the kind of plan from here? Obviously, the reception to the remasters, at least everything I've seen personally, has been fantastic i've thoroughly enjoyed the opportunities to go back and play them um where are everyone's heads at in terms of ty and the future of ty and just the studio and what else you could or couldn't do um i think at the moment we're definitely waiting to see how the the, the physical release goes because i think that's a, a big digital stuff's really cool but there are a lot of people who just will not have access to buying games digitally or don't understand that you go to the digital store and buy it so they want a copy in their hands and people yeah. just want generally just want a copy in their hands, which it's nice to have. So I think we're going to see how the sales on that go. And, and there's a lot of focus still as well on delivering the remainder of our tie to Kickstarter. Um, oh, of course, yeah, breaches and stuff like that 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 still need to be done. And uh, in the wonderful world of global shipping as it is right now, um, it's a mess. There's all sorts of trade which, which uh, Ashley is having a lot of fun with. And if I haven't said it this week, thank you for dealing with all of that. <laughs> so that leads to the, the, the TIE 5 stuff and the Kickstarter. One of the um, rewards in the Kickstarter was I was doing a new TIE comic. The new TIE comic is a setup for 
the world of Tyre as it would be at the start of Tyre 5. So it's a whole bunch of elements setting up, you know, here's a returning character, here's some new characters. I don't know if that's going to be what we finally do for the Tyre 5 game, but that's just where I see the tease world. out some ideas as well. Yeah, it's like, it just, hey, it's like nearly 20 years later, what's going on with these, these, these kids have grown up and they're like, this background character is now taking over the one of the roles of the other characters who, because we've had a, sadly, we've had a, a few of the actors have passed away because you know, it's been 20 years. It's nuts, um, but yeah. So it's basically the I'm working on this new comic, the second issue now, which is for the Tai Chi Kickstarter, which goes into more background stuff. So I'm like going through. It's like, oh, well, what? Okay, there's a couple of bits I'm putting in this one that's actually there's stuff that people have asked about. What happened with say Tai and Sly when all the Thalassines got um, taken back to the Dreaming? It's like you're going to find out in the second issue of the comic. That's one of the, the big elements I'm putting in there. So. While there's new stuff, it's also actually given a chance to say, well, look, we're not going to put that, this info in a game, but here it is, the stuff you've been waiting for decades to find out, which is kind here of... Here are your answers. Yeah. You want answers, here they are. Splump. Uh, and I guess the other party question, I mean, there's a whole there's a whole portfolio of games that we've worked on over the last 10 years that we haven't even touched with this in terms of the, the, the mobile space. And yep. there's several things in flow with that, and uh, we've got... Uh, a couple of partners that we've been working with on and off for years the, the things that we're, we're working through with that and on top of that there's our remaster side i mean we we've got guys that have been working in the industry since the amiga days working with us and and know that stuff i mean the bard's tale trilogy remasters and wasteland remasters and taking some of those games from the 80s that we put the new uh, liquor paint on and, and playability on modern pcs and consoles and stuff like that as well and so there's uh there's a whole bunch of things in in the remaster space that is certainly up our alley and our interests and uh there will be some information about some stuff on that in the next few months oh fantastic it must be a yeah, really exciting time to have so much to choose from i guess uh, in that scope of choice in terms of what we can you know we can do tire we can do this we can do that you've got the catalog to lean back on um does that as a team but also even you know individuals and positions of leadership within the team does that uh, do those conversations become a little bit difficult in terms of you know people pulling in different directions and obviously you know maybe I have a slight bias towards Ty like I'd really like to you know do more with Ty and this person's pulling in a different direction like there, is that difficult always, to kind of manage? Yeah. Absolutely. Look, there's there's always the needs of the business versus the the wants yeah, of totally. what you want to do and and you know decisions have to be made that way because this isn't something that that is you know something that that yeah can just stop. It's something that, you know, we want to maintain and things. So there's a lot of movement towards that space as to, you know, what, what thing is the, the thing that lets us maybe do the thing we want to do and, and set up with that. So it's always a juggle with those things. Be yeah, creative, have fun, but be sustainable about it at the same time. Yeah. The, the conversations always happen, though. That's that's the beauty of it. It's like, yeah, we can, we can talk about stuff and work out. It's like, can we do this now or should we do this later? I will take this project on, but we'd like to do this. On, this one's a cool one we'd like to work towards doing. So we're always talking about stuff, which is great. It's not like... What, what projects to, to look at potentially doing as well, which may not be monetarily the most important thing, but... To have uh, fun on, basically. ...growth-wise, uh, yep. and exposing yourself to elements of the industry which are up and coming, uh, and things like that as well. And there's, there's always so many things. And uh, I guess it'd be, you know not telling the truth if, if we, we said that it's always the thing we want to do is the thing that ends up being doing but we have been pretty lucky I mean Wasteland was one for me I mean uh, that was a game I played a lot of 
it's fantastic it as well so and then Barstow trilogy i mean the, the reason we we ended up doing that was actually because one of our uh, lead engineers who was an absolute mad king Barstow person when the original uh people who were doing the the remaster uh wasn't going so good within exile he, he, he tweeted them uh, <laughs> we got in touch that way yeah right okay that's how the conversation started so yeah Fair enough. It's good when things just work. If we could subtract, uh, just subtract the potential financial constraints and those sort of little variables that need to be factored in, just for the both of you individually, is there a particular project that you would most like to pursue? And again, we can take that kind of concern about financially, everything's fine. We're secure. We can do whatever we want. Whatever idea I have, the team is going to be a hundred percent, you know, in on. They're going to get around it just in this hypothetical sort of scenario. What would you both like to set about doing next? if you had that perfect golden scenario in front of you? You go first, Linz. Uh if, if I had crazy expensive lawyer money, I'd be making a Wing Commander game. Uh, oh, nice. Yeah, yeah good. <laughs> Wait. Uh, no remorse and no regret. And uh, yeah. a lot more experience games. But uh, I think I made that clear at the start of the conversation. Yeah, um, and you might get an opportunity to double down on that again before the episode's out. You'll... you'll... You didn't I've mention Crusader no before. Up. That's why I wanted to ask yeah, that. Yeah, no, I hadn't mentioned Crusader before, and I could launch into the, the, <laughs> the reasons behind all of those. Well. <laughs> uh, yeah, look, I mean, if if it was pure, just uh, uh, make the game you want to make. Uh, uh, obviously, you know, with with everything we've gone through with Ty, there's a, a certain drive there for Ty Five, but I also think just making a brand new game, yep. new IP, new thing. It's always try, exciting. Try some new stuff and, and just do something new. Because, I mean, if if the, there is no fear of repercussion of failure, then, you know, you can be very open with, with whatever you want to try. It's certainly a nice luxury to have that uh, yeah, ab- lack of consequence. But, but yeah, but if, it's if, a nice I, had, if I had uh, silly lawyer money, then yeah, I'd just be doing artificial sequels of Wink Banner. So. <laughs> <laughs> I'll look forward to seeing him one day. <laughs> Steve, what about might. you? Um, well, my thing is making up new IP. So I, I've, even the last 10 years, I've come up with like a half a dozen things I want to do. Yeah. A couple of them I want to make games of. One is like, a love to do a cool mech game. Um, we almost managed it twice. We almost, but this is we'll, we'll try again one day. Uh, I have a giant monster this game that's been sitting around for 15 years that I want to really want to make. And it's like, no one's bothered to make it yet. It's like, that's a really cool idea. Someone should make something like this. Okay, nothing yet. And uh, my neo-Victorian climb um, heist game. Yeah, okay. I like to do. It's kind of like, kind of a weird mix between RPG graphic adventure and a whole bunch of other stuff we were talking about. It's like, it's that kind of big hybrid with um, based on some new comic stuff I'm working on. Oh, oh. maybe another Blade Kitten game. I'd like to do another Blade Kitten game. But another tie game. Yeah, I'd like to make a million other games, to be honest, of, of, our, of original IPs. Who knows? I'll be uh, curiously watching from the sidelines and hopefully we get to see new IPs and Wing Commander knockoffs in the future. <laughs> As we start to wind things down, for both of you individually, is there anyone out there that you've potentially worked with or you look at from afar that really inspires you in the way you go about your work? Either you know, kind of from your leadership perspectives or just you know, maybe inspired on the artistic side, whatever it might happen to be? I know there's a... Not only one person, there's a lot of people that like teams and people out there doing really cool stuff to you that you look at and go, this is great. Um, I'm not going to constrain you to one person. If you if you need to mention multiple people, you're more No, no, I, mean, I, I just like, 
I look around and I see like this is really cool. That's really cool. I like what they're doing. Um, yeah. Like I, I'm a big fan of Kojima stuff. So like um, Metal Gear Solid and all that um, that run of stuff. Of not so much uh, Death Stranding. That wasn't that great. But I saw what they were trying to do with that. That was some interesting stuff. Um, I, I like didn't quite stick it for you personally. Yeah, it's like I, I see what they were doing. There was just things that annoyed me, like the uh, interface was too small. Like, yeah, okay. I'm getting old. It's hard to read that stuff, even on a giant TV. Um, but I get what they were trying to do. And it wasn't like unpolished. It's like, okay, they're trying to do this stuff. So I like that he really tries to get that. He loves his movies. He's, um, yeah, he's probably, actually, he's probably the one I like the most. As a, That's fair. That's what he's doing. I'd say. If I was going to put it down to like one person slash team, it'd be Kojima Productions, I think. Fantastic uh, choice. And um, sorry, I can't remember his name now. But Eco, Last Guardian. Um, oh, um, Ueda. Yeah, Ueda. I actually, did, Ueda. I actually did a comic about for a Japanese magazine once about why I liked uh, Eco, and he read it and saw it and thought it was really cool. This was back in the early two thousands. So yeah, they're they're the kind of that's fantastic game stuff that I like. Uh, just the the feel of environments and yeah. Game-wise, the, uh, Breath of the Wild is my favorite game in the last five years, I think, ten years. It's just amazing. The systems, the way the systems work and they're just getting to explore a big world, even though it's like a lot of games like Far Cry with the towers and all that stuff and, and Assassin's Creed, it's like it's the way they set that environment for you to go and explore stuff is just amazing, and I love that. So, that, yeah. I mean, it's a fantastic choice. Like, I've got my personal little beast with Breath of the Wild, namely around uh, rain, weapon rain. degradation. And sure, yeah, look, everyone, everyone hates the rain, that's fair. But um, we all hate that in real life. So I guess they nailed it, right? Yeah, um, uh, yeah it was mostly just the, the way the swords break and that sort of thing that uh, I'll continue to have a little I crack totally, over. I but totally understand that. It's just it's just one thing that I just can't quite overcome break, personally. Like, I got this cool sword, oh, it breaks too easily. Like, yeah. like if, they, if the damage had lasted a bit longer, it'd be fine. But it's like, hit, 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 hit. Oh, it's gone. Giant. Yeah, it's soul-destroying when that happens. Oh, I'm going to throw a leaf at him. <laughs> I, I don't think it's any surprise that uh, if you, you, I talk about the, the sorts of things that, that I look at in the industry, that it lends towards your, your stuff that, you know, your NXL, your Obsidian. Yes. Uh, Bethesda, as much as I'm one of the <laughs> outlying people where Skyrim didn't do it for me, but I'm looking forward to seeing how what Starfield does. Yeah. Uh, for me and, and look you, if, if you're not a Skyrim fan after the 10 opportunities you've had to buy it then you're doing a pretty <laughs> great job I, I I can't even put my finger on what it is with it that just didn't get me with it yeah um, sometimes there's the I, intangible mate maybe it was Daggerfall flashbacks from back in the day and not yeah, right. knowing where I was I, I don't know so it just uh, compared to Oblivion it, it just didn't do it for whatever reason for me um but uh, um, yeah, a- any of those sorts of of games that has uh, environment and world immersion without requiring me to sleep and manufacture my food um, is the oh, sort yeah. of stuff that, that, that draws me. And I, I, yeah, I have a hard enough time doing that stuff for, for me and the family. I don't need to do it in the computer game I play as well. But, yeah, I can get around that. But uh, but a- anything like that, and then you know, there's. Uh, for for good or ill, you know, keep an eye on Star Citizen and, and that sort of stuff because, again, I think I've, I've talked to you that that's up the alley. So those really broad, you know, epic opera, fictional worlds is is where it is. So it's probably not so much 
particular group or particular you know, director or whatever that that is that but it's those those the creators of those sorts of games those sorts of things and 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 games what? that have that feel and then there's some some stuff coming from some indies through as well um that just has that you know it's it's the vibe yeah i see a bit of that i guess in a local product broken roads for example um broken roads and then uh even if you look at like the ascent yes uh, it just came out i mean it's that you know it's they're not always to the same level of depth but there's there's weight to it i guess in terms of the, yeah. you know, there's, there's some thought to the world building and i mean i'm probably unsurprising to hear that i'm a mass effect tragic as well right so you know, eagerly looking forward to where that is. You know, I've loved Dragon Age all the way through, and I even enjoy Mass Effect Andromeda, which is probably another unpopular opinion to some people. But people warm to it a little bit. But I mean, well, I must admit, I came in after they they patched it several times, so I didn't have yeah, any, right, okay, original janky uh, with with it. But uh, you know, so there really isn't a single thing. I mean, I, I think if you were to talk to me about something where um, I've got some real thought about how that can be applied to gaming. It's the the stuff that has been done for the um, the digital play space in in film and TV making with the the tech yeah. and the yeah. Mandalorian and oh, know, it's incredible. Right? The other day that, that Peter Jackson's selling Weta, yeah, to Unity, Unity, and, and that sort of stuff. And I mean. It, that that sort of thing is, is really interesting to me because it's the the uh, blending of the game engine. We, uh, if you're talking Mandalorian with using Unreal, uh, and the crazy stuff that they're showing in Unreal Five, um, yeah. uh, and that sort of things, and how that's going to affect storytelling in other media because that stuff flows through. Yeah, it makes a lot of sense. Yeah, I mean the the connection to like all these kind of forms of media, especially through the likes of yeah, Unreal these days, we're starting to see it really take center stage in in areas that we would never have previously associated with. It's it's really fascinating to see the potential that's ahead. And the other interesting thing is the the blend of some elements of uh, roguelikes into to mainstream AAA. Um, yep. Uh, as well with um, stuff like Returnal. Returnal. Yeah. Um, who? Um, few X Chrome guys worked on that and stuff as well so um yeah there's the, the i guess the personal connection on that but the, the the sort of blending together of all of these really great design ideas that have been previously pigeonholed and, and we, this is what we were talking about at the start as well is that you know there are rpg elements in everything now and there are starting to be roguelike elements in a lot of things and, and yeah it's it's really starting to be an interesting mix and match and and you know uh, if you then look at people doing storytelling that um you know the, the stuff that like um unpacking. and uh, no, even, unpacking yeah. as well it's yes unpacking the, is fantastic the narrative stuff in that is amazing you actually sit and look oh so there's no telling you any story but the story's all through the objects and, and how they change through the levels like it's very smart in a very simple but complicated way oh it's great to see stuff like that coming out of Australia too. Yeah, hoping to have Tim on the show sometime soon to talk about his side of it. I've had Ren on in the past and she had some amazing things to share pre-release. Um, cool. Unpacking's phenomenal in that respect. 
well, in a number of respects, I should say, actually. But, yeah. but you're right. Like, I mean, what we're seeing in, in the roguelike space is similar to that whole RPG sort of system. And I think when it starts popping up in these big AAA titles, there are opportunities for people to see something that they may or expo- get exposed to something that they may not have otherwise. And all of a sudden, they discover this deep well of stuff that they've missed all these years and it's an opportunity to explore. And I think broadening people's horizons can't be a bad thing, right? Oh, definitely. Yeah, well, I mean, you remember when the first mobile games came out? And, oh, they're not real gamers. Yeah. And I, look, I'll admit, I was in that crew. Like, I kind of turned my nose up at them and looked down upon them for a while there until I just found the right thing for what, what it, I can't, I couldn't even tell you what the game was now, but, you know, found the right game, tried it out, and realized that everything I was saying was just rubbish. Yeah, like, I just had to give them a chance. There are a lot of elements of Farmville which are in, you know, yeah. console games. Just had to put my finger out of my ass and realise that they were there. A <laughs> uh, couple of lighter ones as we wrap up. And I suspect, at least in your case, Lindsay, I think I've got a fairly good idea of what this answer could be. If you could be credited for any game in any capacity, so you could just be down to a simple you know, special thank you sort of uh, position, but if you could be in any way responsible for any particular game that's ever existed, just add your name into the credits. What games would you pick? Wing Commander? ever existed well uh wing commander star control 2 um pool of radiance i think i think i've mentioned all of these previously yes we've gone full circle we're back to the beginning of the show right (laughs) um probably mass effect i had a bit of a geek out moment when we hired a couple of guys that worked on mass effect uh at chrome um as well because um tell me everything (laughs) pretty much (laughs) Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know. There's, there's so many. We could do another hour conversation with, with me rattling off games that have, have meant something to me, you know? Uh, yeah. <laughs> Steve, I, what about I, you? I too many hours playing games. Yeah. <laughs> I I probably would go back to Monkey Island. I think it's all the, just the games that I just had. So informative. Yeah, I just... I mean, there were, there were the other uh, scum games before that, which I'd played, like um, Last Crusade and Zack McCracken and Maniac Mansion. But Monkey Island just got that the humor and the art. And there's Day a lot the of tentacle. artists on it. Sorry? Day of the Tentacle was awesome. Yeah. Day of the Tentacle was not as good as Monkey Island to me. I mean, the art was great, uh, but the game was like going through the time zone and stuff. was like this and there was some weird stuff in there. Um, I liked Full Throttle. But at the time, that was the game that was competing. We were compared to Full Throttle. So a game made by three guys in Brisbane was compared to a team from LucasArts of 30 with the latest technology. And obviously, we didn't measure up at the time. But now we're now we're a classic, apparently. So How uh, time among, how time changes things, right? Yeah, pretty much. Uh, X-Wing, TIE Fighter. No, I think I should like to... Uh, I'm going to go with the one I like having my name on with Force Unleashed. <laughs> Just because it's like... Only for the fact that the credit at the end is directed by Steve Semidiatis. And for, that's that's the closest I'm going to get to doing a Star Wars movie. I don't want to get any closer now. It's like, I've done it. It's like, it was that was awesome. Um, yeah. So the game I've actually got my name on, I think, which is kind of sad. Also, Ty. I'm happy, proud of the Ty stuff, to be honest. No, as, as, as you should be. Like, they're, they're still fantastic titles, regardless of whether you were or weren't involved. Uh, I totally oh. respect the, the decisions there. Also, um, Blankin, because that was the game I'd wanted to do for years. I'd started out doing all the stuff to get this game together and actually getting to fin- make it and finish it. 
um, that was sort of amazing. I put crazy hours in to do all the stuff on that, but that that is the most game I wanted to make, like the game I wanted to make that, that came out. Does that make any sense? ET that's extraterrestrial for the Atari. I'd be famous if my name was in that. Oh, yeah, yeah, you run yeah. out there and go dig it up with everyone else. <laughs> if you could both replay a game, so strike a game from your memory and get to replay it, having not, you know, technically not having experience and get to re-experience that game again, what game would you both pick? Mass Effect. Fantastic decision, I agree. Wind Waker. Oh, actually, I love Wind Waker too. I, I don't know why I sounded so judgmental there. I, I love Wind Waker. Well, I played through that uh, half the game in Japanese, the Japanese version. All right. Got the English version and played through the whole game in English. I was like, oh, this is different. As in, like, oh, that's what I'm supposed to be doing. Um, and then, yeah, the HD version, I, I just really want that on the Switch now because I feel like I can play it again. I just How they've not done that is beyond me, but anyway. It, yeah, I'm sure it's money. coming. It's coming at some point, I'm sure. We've got a phone number if, if you're interested in Nintendo. <laughs> there we go. We'll make sure how to, we'll make sure to shout out how to get in touch right now. Actually, so so both of you, Lindsay, Steve, thank you so much for coming on the show and sharing this journey so far. If listeners want to get in touch, if Nintendo want to get in touch for for any Zelda content going forward, uh, where would people best uh, go to to see what the studio is up to, to see what both of you as individuals are up to? Well, Chrome Studios obviously go to the Chrome Studios website or follow us on any social media I think most of it's under Chrome Studios like uh, Twitter Facebook we're all we're pretty much everywhere yep. um, but best place to go is the website to get links for stuff I'm you can find me usually as Space Captain Steve S-P-A-C-E Capt C-A-P-T Steve I'm everywhere I've got my website um, I, I happily talk to people about stuff so if you want to ask questions I'm, I will give you an answer um, fantastic yeah. Uh, the website as well. We've got the Chrome Insider on, and links to that on the website for um, basically, yeah, old school mail listing groups, and, and that gets the the you know, first cut of a lot of uh, updated news and things. Yeah. Um, in terms of me personally, contact uh, you probably best going through Chrome. I, I don't have much of a uh, public facing online presence. Nope, that's fair enough. Uh, and as you actually highlighted early on, apparently we've got something to say in the next few months, so people should be watching this space i guess yes most as assuredly I, as i mentioned before thank you both so much for coming on and sharing these journeys so far and who knows we might be chatting again in a few in a few years about whatever is is, is come next and I'm, I'm really excited to see whatever that is including whatever it is that's coming in the next few months it's all very exciting i'm sure cool well, very much so thank you very much for the time it's been great yeah we've had fun and listeners as always thank you so much for listening i'll see you next time That concludes this entry of Dev Diary. Be sure to subscribe to this feed, share it with your friends, and give us a five-star review to help boost the show up the charts for greater exposure. If you have any people you'd like me to reach out to in an interview, then please find me at Paul James Games on Twitter to help me get in touch with them. Until our next episode, however, that's been Steve and Lindsay's story. Thank you very much for listening, and I'll see you next time.